Zero tolerance discipline policies were once all the rage in schools, but the research showed that in practice, many children, especially children of color, were being suspended and expelled for extremely minor infractions. Now that zero tolerance is falling out of favor, what does that mean for schools in the juvenile justice system? I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and when we return, I'll be speaking with Dan Lawson, an attorney and former school teacher. He'll tell us how the school districts and lawyers can help plug the school to prison pipeline. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next. Folder sharing on Westlaw Next enables you to tap into previous research across organizational boundaries like never before, saving you time from reinventing the wheel. Learn more at westlawnext.com. Dan, will you tell us about the school to prison pipeline and why lawyers should be paying attention to it? The school to prison pipeline describes the many ways in which inadequate support for kids in schools contributes to a increased flow of kids dropping out of school and winding up in the juvenile justice system. And so especially lawyers representing kids, but also lawyers representing school districts and civil rights attorneys, disciplinary rights attorneys, should be concerned because there are remedies, there are things that schools can do much better and differently. Um, Much of my work focuses on discipline policies and practices, but it really goes deeper than that. So it does also include things like resource inequality, so lawyers who are interested in school finance litigation, for example. There's a uh, school-to-prison component there as well because it's typically the under-resourced schools that have the highest dropout rates, often the harshest discipline, and often there there's this sort of uh, concern that they can't teach all kids, they just don't have the resources, so they have to kick out the so-called bad kids so the good kids can learn. Of course, research has exposed that thinking as a, a, a myth and very counterproductive. In fact, even among uh, schools serving the kids from high-crime districts and high-poverty neighborhoods, schools that really invest in relationships and don't, as a result, have high suspension rates, tend to have higher achievement and higher graduation rates and better outcomes for students, all students. So this idea that has taken hold in the minds of many that we, we can't teach all kids, so we just have to we have to kick out the bad ones so the good kids can learn. I think that's fueling uh, this what we call the school-to-prison pipeline. And then those attorneys working on the juvenile justice system, often students whose rights have been trampled on by school districts uh, wind up in the juvenile justice system. So public defenders often will know, of, you know, it could be a violation of uh, protections against illegal searches and seizures by uh, school principals or school police officers who have taken a minor violation, you know, and a minor infraction of the school code and just accelerated that, um, exacerbated whatever the initial problem was to the point where a student is arrested and winds up in the juvenile justice system directly uh, from school. And oftentimes these school uh, police officers are untrained and are doing things that are actually counterproductive to the school environment and increasing the flow into the juvenile justice system. And then there are kids with disabilities, some of 
sometimes these kids are not being identified, or in other cases they may be identified but not getting the appropriate uh, kinds of supports and services they need to be successful in school, and as a result, you know, they spin out of control and eventually either drop out or get involved in gangs or or directly, as in the first example, are arrested at school for their school-related behavior when, in fact, they really were denied equal educational opportunity because of their disability. They were supposed to get supports and services and either didn't or get or got inadequate supports and services, and so things escalate out of control. So there's a great deal that lawyers have to say about that, and also, you know, really effective attorneys who work for school districts can encourage their clients to do the right thing. Uh, in civil rights litigation, well, not really litigation, in terms of administrative complaints, there's uh, a whole way that school districts can get in trouble where if they can't justify their disciplinary policies and practices and it's having a disparate impact on kids by race or disability status or even gender, it can actually be a violation of civil rights to continue that ineffective or counterproductive practice if it has a disparate impact along those lines, especially now that research shows us that there are Alternatives. These are considered less discriminatory alternatives because they would reduce the harms of, from excessive out-of-school suspensions and expulsions. I think when, if you're not involved in the public school system, when you hear about a child getting suspelled, excuse me, suspended <laughs> or expelled, yeah, I came up with my own term there, yeah, um, okay. you kind of assume that, well, maybe they brought a gun to school or they had a right. fight or they brought some drugs. From what I have seen from reporting this story, that's not the case. I, one that comes to mind is um, a kid got kicked out of school for cutting in lunch line. It's not because they're bringing a gun to school or drugs. It's stuff yes, usually, that most of us would have gotten kicked out for it 20 years ago. Right. And it's, it's uh, so the, the slight slip of the tongue that you had is, is um, sort of emblematic because people do associate uh, getting suspend, suspended with these sorts of these kinds of violations that usually would result in a, a full-scale expulsion. And expulsions from school are usually less than 1% of any enrollment. And expulsions are usually for these very serious offenses. So most of the data when I'm talking about suspensions don't involve the, the very serious offenses that involve, you know, assaults on teachers or bringing illegal drugs to school, the kinds of things that students get expelled for. Now, that's not to say that there are many, many students that are expelled for repeated violations of minor school rules or where the underlying trigger was actually a minor violation and it may have escalated into something that could have been prevented. So I don't want to leave expulsions off the table. On the other hand, the vast majority of the offenses in the states that do report these data to the public, we find the vast majority are from minor infractions, uh, categories like disruption, willful defiance, um, truancy, uh, dress code violations, um, all sorts of minor offenses. There are 24 offense codes for which a student can be suspended out of school. One of those is the category of disruption or willful defiance. It's sort of the catch-all and you can 
be suspended, you know, for rolling your eyes at the teacher or throwing a pencil or not following directions. And 48% of all the suspensions in California fall under that one category. Now, there are other minor offense categories like possession of tobacco and minor altercations um, that are also suspendable offenses. But this huge catch-all minor offense category accounts for also the largest racial disparities and the largest disparities between kids with and without disabilities. So there is a sort of misconception, maybe because at least when I went to school, maybe when you went to school, I think you suggested that, you know, it was only the really serious um, kinds of offenses that would be where, where the schools would respond with a removal from school, whether it be, be a suspension or an expulsion. But today, suspensions in many districts are handed out right and left. Now, it's important also to say that we looked at every middle school and high school across the country that was uh, surveyed by OCR. So this is over 7,000 school, no, over 7,000 districts and tens of thousands of schools and found that there were many, many, many schools. The majority actually were not, I would not consider it high suspending, but there are also many that are way above the national averages um, for suspension rates. So we see rates of, for black students in many districts, exceeding 50% of their enrollment. Um, and that's in K through 12. We, if we look at the middle school rates and the high school rates, they're even higher than that. Los Angeles has done a great job recently in eliminating this category of willful defiance and disruption as a, as a reason for suspensions out of school. So they, they, they don't do that anymore. And they have dramatically reduced both racial disparities and the use of suspensions. Uh, so there's a lot that can be done and in fact that is being done now in schools and districts across the nation. Well, I'm curious, are you seeing many instances where uh, a school's council or maybe a district's compliance office will look at their suspension and um, expulsion numbers and say, look, you are uh, expelling and suspending way too many children who are in a protected class. You need to look at this, and we need to really think about this. Well, we hope that will start happening. Before they get sued first and then they get the lawyer's attention. In January of 2014, the U.S. Department of Ed's Office for Civil Rights issued a letter to all uh, school district administrators and state administrators uh, detailing the, the, the standards for discrimination, in particular with regard to discipline. So they went over the so the typical discrimination, which is you compare, you know, or were similarly situated students treated differently because of their race or disability, and that's called different treatment. That's sort of the classic discrimination case that most people are familiar with, but then they also spelled out that a school or school district could be violating civil rights protections because of disparate impact, mm -hmm. and that has, you know, the three components of that are one, the policy practice is having uh, is leading to more suspensions for one protected subgroup or another uh, compared to other children. So that's so there's a disparity that's harmful. Um, and then two, that the policy or practice in place is not educationally sound or justifiable. And they give the example of suspending kids for truancy, where all the research suggests this is counterproductive. It's actually not a deterrent to truant kids to suspend them and tell them they can't come to school. 
Surprise, surprise. So that's a blatant example. These are these are not the examples OCR provides are not the limits, but just to illustrate the 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 concept. And then and so they use truancy and I think they might mention dress codes as another possible area. You know, if you're worried about gang involvement yet you're putting kids out on the street where they're unsupervised, suspending them for violating a dress code where they're much more likely to become involved in a gang, that, you know, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But the truth is that, you know, by and large, most, especially the excessive use of -of out-of-school suspensions, and a lot of times, um, you know, suspensions for all these minor offenses, there is no support in the research for that approach, even for, you know, things like willful defiance and disruption. So, um, that doesn't mean that students should never be removed from the classroom or that, in other words, there's a whole range of things that folks can do in the schools to address misbehavior that reserves suspension to really uh, be used as a measure of last resort. And so that brings up the third prong, which are, the question is, are there less discriminatory alternatives? And so um, the OCR letter and research since has pointed out, yes, there are many alternatives that would reduce the number of kids suspended and most likely reduce the racial disparities therein. So so one is something called restorative practices, which comes out of the juvenile justice uh, realm. And the idea is that you're holding, there's more adult involvement. And in the school setting, you're trying to keep kids in school and to be part of the community and to be more responsible for the community, understand that they are a wanted and needed part of that community, but that their behavior is detrimental to the needs of the community and also to themselves. And so part of restorative practices not only addresses, you know, uh, some sort of uh, paying retribution of some sort, but also getting at the root cause of the issue so that it doesn't recur. So there's a major preventative aspect. And that's only that's where you have these sort of restorative justice circles and, and um, you know, that's in a response to something really significant. But in the regular everyday classroom, the approach of the teacher changes. It's that sense that I want to keep all these kids in the classroom, but I need to have a, an effective learning environment. So when kids are disruptive, Instead of, you know, escalating the situation or immediately kicking them out, the teacher finds a way to sort of problem solve with the child so that they understand that their misbehavior is having a detrimental effect, and but also showing the child that they care about them and they don't want to kick them out of the classroom and they want to help find out why they're being disruptive or doing something that's detrimental to the classroom community so they can be successful. And a lot of what goes on in sort of restorative practices is about strengthening those relationships, strengthening relationships with the parents of children, and also helping all the students feel like they are vital members of the community so that they want and they're heavily invested in the the success of their classroom and their school. Um, Other practice, that's just one. So there's positive behavioral interventions and supports, which is a tiered system Um, It starts with, you know, sort of a core values approach about getting every staff member on board with the idea that they're going to encourage positive behavior and not, you know, highlight negative behavior. Um, And where they do see students misbehaving, they can identify, is this a a general issue that that, you know, the classroom teacher can address? And they'll think about different ways of 
intervening, you know, at, at a very sort of light level if that's appropriate, but also identifying kids who need more supports and services at these different levels. And if the, the problem behavior persists, it involves getting supports. It could involve special education referral, but it, it really addresses the issue, again, as a problem-solving one, and it, it also entails the whole community sort of embracing the, the, these core values and reinforcing positive behavior rather than harping on the negative behavior. And those are just two. If teachers are forming closer relationships, more trusting relationships, more positive relationships with their students, that, that's the kind of thing that tends to push back against stereotypes and unconscious bias against uh, students of color or students with disabilities. So having working on developing those positive relationships is really uh, critically important. So if you're a lawyer and you're tasked with maybe you have a consent degree or any, you're tasked with getting school administrators and staff to get on board with some of these ways to create a um, supportive school climate, what do you do with administrators and staff who may not have really bought in? I think there's an issue perhaps that they'll do what you tell them to do, but if they don't embrace the plan, you're probably not going to have meaningful change. Ultimately, you have to change the way principals and teachers and administrators are interacting, and you have to change their approach to discipline. So, so if they are really resistant, that's, that is more difficult. Um, but the good news is that usually um, the kinds of alternatives that we're talking about are not only more effective, but most teachers and administrators don't go into education thinking we've got to kick out bad kids. They go in thinking I, we can educate these students and they're dedicated to that goal, and they may be misguided about how to achieve it. But because these alternatives that I'm talking about are research-based and the research strongly indicates that they are more effective, um, you know, success breeds success. So one way to address a recalcitrant district might be to start with pilot programs. Usually within a large district, there'll be some folks who are will buy in and to show what's possible and to sort of work that way. But that may not be satisfactory when um, there's a lot of resistance and also when there is obstruction at the district level, it can sort of quiet those who may be interested in trying something else they may be sort of silenced by the teachers' union or by the administrators or by the principal. So that does it, it does create real difficulty. I think one of the things that's really important of, for any agreement is to monitor the data by race, by disability, um, with very clear sort of quarterly analysis. You know, there is uh, the ultimate threat uh, for an OCR complaint is to withdraw the federal funding from the district. So. I don't think any superintendent wants that on their record. So ultimately, the combination of, of the fact that the alternatives really do work and most people who, once they do try them, find them to be more successful are really pleased with that. I mean, it's very I, – I was a teacher for 10 years, and I started out as one of those, those teachers who sent kids to the principal's office right and left. And, it, you know, chaos isn't fun. It's not fun to be that teacher. <laughs> You don't feel like you're being very effective. And usually the other thing is that test scores tend to be much lower and graduation rates tend to be much lower when you when you have excessive discipline, and that's borne out by the research. 
So oftentimes you can appeal to uh, resistant teachers and administrators by showing them the data that when, you know, if they do work on changing their ways, their test scores will go up, their graduation rates will go up, the school district will be a higher performing, not lower performing one. All right. Well, that's everything that I have. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, powered by WestSearch, the world's most advanced legal search engine delivering the best results in seconds. Learn more at westlawnext.com.